Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Hispanic Latina Heritage Month with Dr. Maria Armstrong. Dr. Armstrong is Executive Director of the National Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents. Born in a barrio in San Diego, California, she grew up in a home where a range of languages were spoken. Her mother's family, who are Mescalaro Apache, owned land in what is now Southern Arizona. Her father was descended from the Yaqui, an indigenous group in Arizona and Mexico. As Dr. Armstrong says, my family didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. After dropping out of high school, Dr. Armstrong attended night school and every community college within a 25-mile radius of her home. Ultimately, she earned a doctorate in organizational leadership. In 2021, Dr. Armstrong was named one of the top 20 female leaders in the education industry. Having served as a teacher, a superintendent, a school counselor, and a tech expert, among many other roles, Dr. Armstrong is dedicated to helping children achieve reading proficiency, especially children who have been historically marginalized. She is one of 10 educational leaders who contributed to Scholastic's 2020 title, Equity in the Classroom. Dr. Armstrong is currently an advisor to Scholastic's Rising Voices book series, Elevating Latino Stories. What I'm most proud of, she says, are my own children and grandchildren. My children saved my life, and public education was my family's saving grace. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Maria Armstrong to the Scholastic Reads podcast. Hi, Dr. Armstrong. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Please tell us about your role as Executive Director of the Association of Latino Administrators and Supervisors. As the executive director of ALAS, it is a variety of roles, really, but probably the one that I feel most proud and humbled by is the fact that being a voice for all of our administrators and superintendents, those titles are really stretched broadly. As you can imagine, as Latino leaders in education, an administrator could be an aspiring administrator, which would mean a teacher a teacher leader, someone who is aspiring to become an administrator, all the way through the system up to a superintendent. And so being a voice is really, I think, probably one of the greatest gifts that I get to experience on their behalf, because I spend a lot of time listening to what they're going through, but more importantly, maybe even as equal is the things that they're so proud of that they are working on and doing for students across this nation. How did you get into teaching? When I was a child, when I would come home from school, and that is school. I used to play school. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to line up all the kids in the neighborhood, obviously younger than me, 
so that I could tell them what to do and how to do it. And so that never left me because I would always get praise also about and teased from my 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 aunts and my uncles and, and my parents saying, there she goes, telling people what to do. But one of the things that I found is that even through all of those different twists and turns of my journey, I was going to school at night and one of the teachers of the course had shared with me that the high school principal was looking for a teacher and he thought that I would be a great match for that. And I told him, but I'm a high school dropout. He says, I think you need to meet with the principal and let them talk to you about what you need to become a teacher. So long story longer, I did have that chat with the principal and she was probably one of the biggest champions of my life. And it not only changed my life, but it changed the trajectory of my family and their lives for generations. Could you explain how that is, why that is? There is such a power that people in education possess, and they can open doors that no one else can open for you. Whether you're a classroom teacher with students and being their champion to being an adult and walking into a principal's office and she laid it out to me and said, look, I've been having this conversation with you for two hours and you probably didn't even realize that this is an interview. You were recommended to me because you chose to teach a class that your teacher was not qualified to teach for the rest of your class. And this is other adults. And she said, for you to just do that, that must mean that you have some innate ability in you to want to do that. And I said, my day job allows for me to do that. It's not anything that I feel like I was born with, but it was something that I have been training for, for that time. And she shared with me how these are the steps you're going to lock yourself in the room this weekend. You're going to, before you do that, you're going to check out this test for a GED that you're going to pass the following week. And then we're going to get you in a a college and you're going to get an emergency teacher and credential. And we're going to just be with you every step of the way. And her words were golden. And so I did everything she asked me to do. And that, that's how I became a teacher. Someone opened a door and gave me an opportunity for me to pass through it. And how did that affect your family? So the trajectory that I talk about is that it instilled in me talking to my own kids because I had my children at a very young age. College was always spoken about. You're going to go to college. You're going to keep going to school. You got to graduate. Graduating high school was not going to be enough. That wasn't something that was spoken to me in my home. But then you have to remember, I left my home at the age of 16. So that influence really wasn't there. And for me to be able to provide that to my kids later on in life, and then get to see them go on to college, and now be the amazing adults that they are in their lives, and see my grandchildren. My grandchildren now, they look at education in a a different way. It's not just, again, about graduating from high school. I have five grandkids, Suzanne. My granddaughter just graduated high school. She's my only granddaughter. She graduated high school this past May. And when she graduated, she graduated high school with her AA. She just started at the University of Utah already as a junior And so for her to do that at the age of 18, 
that's the kind of trajectory that I have to illustrate and draw that out for you. Tell us a little bit about your parents and their views on education. Let's start with my mom. She only had a ninth grade education. My dad went into the army at age 16 and earned his GED there. They viewed education as something that they knew was a way out of the poverty that we lived in. However, they just didn't know how. My family, which is of Latino and Apache and Yaqui heritage, that they came from the roots of families first. We do everything for family and of service. School is you go to school, of course, but you you don't leave behind and you don't forget where you come from. Because the lessons, the education is not just in school that is learned. The education and the lessons we learned are handed down to us from my great grandparents to my grandparents. My grandparents were everything. They taught me so much growing up that are lessons that I never read in books in school. There were never stories that were acknowledged in school, but I, I was filled with rich story and legacy to be able to pass down continuously through my family. And it's not that education in school wasn't important. They just viewed education as so much more than just that. Where did you grow up and what was their heritage? So my on my mom's side, we are Mescalero Apache. And so before the states were broken up into what is now California, my family on that side actually lived on the north side of the rim or the northern Arizona, Colorado area. And then on my father's side, it was more on the southern, which is more, and he's of Yaqui descent, which is more of the southern. And so out of Arizona area. And so once that, all of that area, way before it became part of the U.S. and it was part of Mexico, we had a lot of land. And as it was told and continues to be the story that has been passed down to us, there was much land in, of, of our, that our family had. And so moving is they started to move to California, sending the, mainly the women and, and young children because of the war, the Great War that they called. And so they had to move. And so those stories, a lot of had to be they had to be held sacred and passed down, especially from on the Mescalero Apache side, where we were told anything that was written or documented or anything like that, everything was burned. So nothing was able to have been um, resurrected that way. That's why I say the stories of education is, is so much more encompassing of what you learn in school. Education starts, they, be, they believed in the home. You were taught how to be respectful. And these lessons can be misconstrued in school. I really need to point that out. They could be misconstrued in ways that from a Latino background, that if you're not looking at people in the eyes when they speak to you, that you're being disrespectful. And we were taught you don't do that. You just listen. You are humbled when people are, are correcting you because they're trying to show you something and people forget that there are different cultures that come into play and we have to be cognizant of that in order to reach one another. So coming from a, a large Latino family, and I'll tell you where I grew up in California, the school district that educated the family of that was really large on my mom's side, of all the, the nine kids that went through that school system, only the youngest graduated. And that was four uncles and five aunties. And so that's something that stood within me. And to be able to go back to that district as an adult and work as a principal at one of the high schools, it meant something. 
I was gone for a long time, but to go back as a principal of a high school and work within the communities that I came from, I understood those kinds of lessons, which is why I just have to underscore that education in our families, the Latino families, is far bigger than the four walls that we send our kids to from a certain time to from the morning to the afternoon. What were some of the languages that were spoken in your home by your parents and your grandparents? The time that I was growing up, I was not allowed to speak Spanish. And Spanish was spoken, but there was also another dialect. And that other dialect was a mixture of some of the language from what I just call from way back (laughs) that was passed down and with Spanish. And so in the barrio of, of where my family grew up, because remember, when they moved, they were landowners. So they owned city two city blocks to the point where the mayor of the town did everything he could in his power to buy that from my family. And it, it took the passing of my grandparents for that to even happen. But being able to be true to the language that they had, there were a lot of Latinos because it's so close to the border. So there were a lot of people coming up from the the Mexican border who had already been there. So there were like these five families that were in this area, this neighborhood that they've known each other and they've been there for since the early, I don't even know. I, I think there was clocked like 1700s and something. And so back then, the kinds of language that then gets watered down. And then because of school, we weren't allowed to speak Spanish and only at home we could hear it. But we were told if you talk, if you speak it in in school, you're going to get in trouble. So you save that for home, but we know you have to practice English. So just speak English. Now, my parents spoke both English and Spanish. My grandparents did not. It was always, like I said, Spanish and this other dialect. So we're talking 1960s, early 1970s, let's say. Very good. More like late 50s, early 60s. Yes. (laughs) What about the larger culture? Did you watch television or go to movies or go to the library? What were you seeing? I, I would imagine there wasn't much to reflect your own experiences at home. One of my earlier memories as well, it's I didn't go to the library. There was no library which is why the coveted Bible was this big book of stories, right? But it was more than that. I would be able to bring home a book from school. You were only allowed to check out one book from the classroom so that you could read at night. And then you got to take it back the next day, right? And I remember the Dick and Jane, fun with Dick and Jane books. But I used to think, oh my goodness, what do you mean this white picket fence, this parent and family structure and the dog. And it was like, so not what I knew. (laughs) We had dogs. Yeah. But they ran around in the hood and whoever fed them, fed them. And there was no white picket fence for sure. But what we had was family. And what we had was the security of knowing that when anybody in that neighborhood needed anything, we were there. We were there, not just as an individual, but as a community. Those kinds of lessons that you learn, I think, are the experiences that you carry with you. What about shopping and food and all of that? How did you have special meals or celebrations that you remember, traditions that you had? I think about it now. I get the question asked often, what's the best way to celebrate Latino Heritage, Hispanic Heritage Month? I say Latino Hispanic Heritage Month. 
And I say, I know that we are provided this one block of time as our other cultures and identities, but I tend to think that we find time to celebrate the entire journey. And special times and celebrations, food is a central part. It's because it's something that you compartir, you share, right? So food is a place to be able to make something with love and to be able to show this is my specialty and I want to share it with you. So everybody brings something that they are proud of and it makes it all tastier, of course, because you're eating the best from everyone. Food is very central. But I also think that it's just the gathering and the sharing of the stories. We are now afforded opportunity to read books. We have far more authors that are of the Latino experience that can share because the Latino experience of mine is going to be very different from the Latino experience of my friends in Puerto Rico or in Colombia. And so they're very different because they all have nuances, just like you would have nuances from community to community. And so just coming together and sharing those stories I think is probably one of the precious gems that that anyone can have during time um, of celebration, along with the food, of course. But the stories are always so rich. Can you paint a picture what your home was like? What foods did you eat? My grandparents, like I said, they had a city block. And on that block, it was really a small three-bedroom home with a detached garage that they had turned converted into a, another place for the family to live in. And then the rest was dedicated to being able to grow plants. And the plants were always a a very centered part because my grandmother was known as a healer. So people would come from all over. And so she would make sure she had her herbs growing, that she can make different kinds of healing for upset stomachs, for whatever, headaches, different things. So my grandmother would plan, she'd make sure that the There was harvest time that we were celebrating because we had grapevines if it was. And that's a whole other story because we have family in other parts of California that do that. But whether it's just pulling from where she was growing to prepare for the meal and then everybody had a duty. So like each of my aunts or if my uncles had to go pick something or bring it back or my aunts had to clean it and boil it, everybody had a role in preparation. And so it never seemed like it was a chore, though. It was like something that became tradition, something to look forward to. And so those are the probably even down to the assembly line of making tamales. We would make tamales and tamales is a huge production. And so there's a lot of preparation that goes into that in advance. But then even when it comes to putting everything together, you have an assembly line going on. But during the assembly line, it is the talk and what people are talking about that is makes the time go by so much faster. And as a young kid, all you're doing is listening because you want to hear what the grownups are saying. <laughs> That's great. As it's important for children who children who grew up in circumstances like yours, but for everyone to have books in which they see themselves or culturally relevant materials. Could you explain to our listeners why that is so important? I am so proud of the work that the Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents has partnered with Scholastic to do in the launching of the 
Rising Voices, um, Elevating Latino Stories Collection for the past year. It's going to be almost a year. Next week, it'll be a year that I was privileged to be a part of that launch. And that's because it has been a personal mission as well as professional that because I didn't grow up with a print-rich environment that we know enables students to want to learn how to read. It supports them in their reading. It's reading is a difficult thing. And we have to recognize that it may come easy for some. And that's because typically they come from print rich environments. But there are a lot of us who didn't. And so being able to have these stories that are relatable, relatable to the kids that we want them to learn how to read is so important. So that I don't have to look at stories like Dick and Jane as the only story in the collection. They're fun and there's something to read about. But boy, would it have made a difference that I could read about my own stories, about my something that I could recognize myself in. Um, that validates. It validates and it gives voice to being who I am in this entire landscape that we call our planet. What are some of the titles in the Rising Voices collection? Oh, my goodness. So there's so many, but the one that always pops up <laughs> is because it's probably because it's mine. It's two cities, and two, um, two borders of two cities where it's so reminiscent. It's about a little boy, but I could have easily swapped myself out and put him in his place. And it speaks to the comings and goings across the border because we live so close to the border. And so as a frontera, the front there for the border, going across the border was so matter of, of fact to me growing up. But yet it became so matter of fact, even when we were pulled over and we had to, they literally would take every seat apart within our car to make sure that things weren't being transported. I never understood that. I just thought that was part of the drill because that's just what they always did. It wasn't until I was older that I understood why they were doing that. And those kinds of stories could unlock a lot of mystery for kids and feeling like, why did that just happen to me? Or is it because of me that this is happening? Instead of that, they could see these stories in themselves and say, wow, I wasn't the only one that went through that. I've made a connection with this story. And again, it's just that other validation. Now, there's a lot of other stories in this collection, but that one, it was just so close to something that I knew that it, it resonated. Immigration and border issues, of course, are central in our political conversation. How do you feel about the discussions and what would you like people to know from your perspective living near the border? What's at stake for these families? Here's where I think things come full circle. Everybody has a story. Everyone has a perspective that is basically shaped by that story. And it's predicated on experiences, right? And one of the things that I wish that people would take to heart is that we get so caught up in our day-to-day -day function that we oftentimes overlook our purpose. And the purpose of a globe is not to have borders. It's just not. I most recently had probably one of the highlights of my life where I was able to interview astronaut Dr. Jose Hernandez. 
and he too is from the state of California. And the questions that were coming through as I was interviewing him, I asked, but I had one that I, my, my young Maria self <laughs> wanted to ask. And I shared that with him. And I said, I just want to know what was the first thought that went through your mind the minute that you were up in space and looked out that window. And he said, to see that the world is so connected. I saw Mexico. I saw Canada. I saw the U.S. I saw all of these countries. And there were no borders. Wow. And that is the point. We get so caught up in these dividing minutia because at the end of the day, people are going to come to this planet and then they're going to leave it. And not all of us get to see it from up in space. So why would we have to wait to figure out that our globe has no borders? Beautifully said. Finally, Dr. Armstrong, I wondered if you could give advice to families and educators who want to honor and celebrate Hispanic and Latino Heritage Month. The first thing that comes to mind is don't stop at a month. <laughs> Another artificial division. You know, it's, that's, that's the, that's, esa es la vida. That's the life, right? Is to, it's great to take a pause, a beat and a breath, like I like to say, and say, okay, yeah, it is. And we get to, we get to spotlight, we get to hold the mic for a little bit. And that's great. Everyone deserves a, a chance at the mic. But don't let it stop there. It's like refuel, learn more, engage in the culture just a little bit more. But don't forget and keep exploring it. Make it last more than a month. Thank you so very much, Dr. Armstrong. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you, Suzanne. My great thanks again to Dr. Maria Armstrong for joining me today. And thank you for listening. If you're looking to share more Latino stories with the young readers in your life, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Maxine Osa, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.